Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. The following episode is part one of a reading of Fight Back's perspectives for 2021. This document was discussed, amended, and passed by the comrades of Fight Back, La Repose Socialiste, at the National Congress. It's an important analysis of class struggle in Canada and the way forward to socialism. We hope everyone will listen to and discuss its contents with us. This reading is presented by Comrade Odin Mulder. COVID-19 has exacerbated all of the contradictions of capitalist society and has created a situation unparalleled in world history. The economic collapse triggered by the pandemic is without precedent in magnitude and scope, the consequences of which have not fully set in. All of this has been added to the mix of a world characterized by social volatility and political polarization. Revolutionary implications are inherent in the entire situation. Faced with this, the capitalist class has turned to the state to save capitalism. They have opened the money traps to prop up the system, prevent total collapse, and mitigate the worst class contradictions. At Davos, the strategists of capital have all become converts to state expenditure and a so-called Great Reset to establish a new social contract to avoid revolution. In Canada, the Trudeau Liberals have unleashed a bailout program of unparalleled proportions. However, even if the bourgeois are able to temporarily stabilize the economic situation, which is in no way guaranteed, there is plenty of combustible material in society. One spark could set it all alight. The hypocrisy of the rich during the pandemic and the massive increase in inequality creates a situation in which class hatred can easily boil over into open class war. Added to this is the fact that government spending is no permanent solution to the crisis of capitalism and only delays the inevitable, ultimately making the situation worse by adding all sorts of distortions with inflation and massive debt. The purpose of this document is twofold. First, we seek to lay out the general trends in Canadian society, both political and economic, to provide activists with a general framework to understand the epoch we are living in. Secondly, we aim to arm activists with the arguments necessary to win the working class to the program of socialist revolution as the only way to overcome the current crisis. COVID-19 will have effects that will last a generation, and it would have had a serious impact on any society at any point of history. But the virus did not strike any society. It struck weak and ailing capitalism in its period of senile decay. It struck a society where class polarization is developing and where there is a growing socialist consciousness among wide layers of workers and youth. The way that the capitalists have dealt with the pandemic will leave a mark on the consciousness of working-class people for generations to come. The propagandists of capitalism like to say, we are all in this together. We are certainly all in this, but definitely not all together. In country after country, the poorer and radicalized segments of the population have faced the brunt of infection and death and job losses. In particular, 70% of those who lost their jobs at the start of the pandemic were working-class women. Similar statistics of the disproportionate impact of the pandemic on particularly oppressed segments of the working class can be drawn at a whim. Meanwhile, the ruling class can quite safely collect their profits from the comfort of their mansions without the need to interact with normal working-class people who make and deliver the things the rich enjoy. While the capitalists and most higher-paid white-collar professionals can safely limit their exposure, poorer working-class people do not have that luxury. 
all the factors of racism and poverty serve to compound the pandemic. Firstly, being forced into essential manufacturing, warehousing, service sector, and transport work with insufficient PPE and social distancing increases infection. Low pay means workers have to carpool or cram onto public transit, increasing infection. Shift work and insufficient hours force workers to get two or three jobs, which spreads the infection. Low pay also means cramped housing, with many people living in small spaces in high-rise apartments with no ability to physically distance in elevators. The refusal of bosses and governments to provide paid sick leave also forces workers to choose between potentially spreading the virus or staying home and not having money to pay the rent. While the social conditions of capitalism force increased infection rates on workers, immigrants, and people of color, they also increase the lethality of the virus. Poverty, racism, bad housing, shift work, and precarious conditions lead to poor nutrition, irregular sleeping patterns, and a general reduction in health. In turn, this leads to a compromised immune system. Here, we see how capitalism literally kills. Scandalously, some right-wing politicians resisting the call for public health measures have had the gall to blame the cultural practices of some ethnic populations with large families. These racist dog whistles have been largely rejected by the population, but similar attacks have not been without consequences. British Columbia has seen a massive uptick of anti-Asian hate crimes, which in Vancouver increased by 717% from 2019 to 2020, along with 1,100 anti-Asian attacks across Canada in the same period. This trend will continue as the crisis deepens and the ruling class looks to further scapegoat minorities. In the first wave of the pandemic, there were massive shortages of staff and PPE. This was particularly acute in long-term care, where unions had identified the need to hire more workers at higher pay and full-time hours. Thousands died. There were also several significant workplace outbreaks, such as at the Cargill meat plant and amongst temporary foreign farm workers. After the first wave, the virus subsided in the summer and there was a clear opportunity to take the measures to stop the second wave. But due to the profiteering of the capitalists and the penny-pinching of their governments, nothing was done. The deaths in the second and third waves are the clear responsibility of every corporation, politician, and media mouthpiece that prioritized profits over health. Scandalously, in Ontario, even more elderly people died in long-term care in the second wave, despite crystal-clear guidelines of what needed to be done. Instead of increasing wages and hiring more workers, they passed laws to protect private owners from prosecution. In the workplace, there has been systemic resistance to anything that would limit profits and protect workers. Every action has been too little and far too late. But this was all prepared well in advance. Canada, just like every other Western imperialist country, has been defunding social services since the 1970s. Canada has enacted decades of cuts to healthcare and public health despite clear warnings that a pandemic was inevitable. Even the fact that Canada was a center of infection for the SARS epidemic did not lead to increased preparedness. Such short-sightedness is symptomatic of a decrepit and decaying system, a ruling class who has no hope in the future and no hope in itself. Instead of investing in a better society for the betterment of all, the capitalist class has demanded that everything that makes life half-livable be torn down in favor of naked cash payment. Half a century of austerity in one form or another has seen a massive transfer of wealth from the poor to the rich. The cuts to healthcare have been particularly detrimental in the pandemic, but everything else has also been on the chopping block. 
Privatization cuts social services and gives a new avenue for profiteering and union-busting. This has the effect of decimating the social wage of the working class. In exchange, tax cuts are gifted to the rich and the corporations. People could perhaps forgive the bourgeois for their short-sightedness and lack of preparation prior to the crisis if they subsequently took the steps to solve the unfolding catastrophe, but yet again, short-term profits were placed ahead of human lives. However, this time there could be no excuse of ignorance. Another result of this has been an incredible concentration of wealth while the majority suffer. The top 1% now control over 25% of the wealth, a figure not seen since 1929. But contrary to 1929, when inequality lessened in the crisis, today the rich are profiteering from the catastrophe. After the Great Depression and the Second World War, the top 1%'s wealth share fell to approximately 10%. But today, we hear stories of Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk's wealth ballooning by billions in the pandemic. The Canadian billionaire class is also making a killing at the same time as people die due to failed public health measures that prioritize profits. Prior to the pandemic, there was the scandal of Canadian corporations sitting on billions of dollars of uninvested cash. Mark Carney, when he was governor of the Bank of Canada, raised this issue in 2012 and mused about incentivizing the bosses to invest in production. Back then, Canadian dead money was a paltry half a trillion dollars. After that, Carney was told to shut up and the corporate media collaborated in forgetting the scandal. But while they continued their willful ignorance, research by Marxist.ca showed that the hoard continued growing until it reached $1 trillion in 2019. The existence of such a cash hoard puts the lie to every statement that there is no money for free education, pharmacare, childcare, social housing, clean water on reserves, pension, or any of the other needs of workers. The money exists, but the capitalist system demands it be locked in a vault far away from working class people. However, 2020 was a year like no other. In the midst of the pandemic, when there was allegedly no more money for PPE, no money for test and trace, no money for long-term care staffing and wages, when thousands of workers were literally dying while the bosses collected their profits in comfort, they threw an unprecedented half a trillion dollars on the dead money pile. Corporate Canada's money hoard rocketed up at more than five times the previously scandalous rate from $1 trillion to over $1.5 trillion in a single year. Corporate apologists protest, saying that these businesses are just being prudent and looking after their private interest. Why would they invest in production when there is no market for that production? This is exactly the point. Their actions are the logical consequence of a system built for private profit and not for the common good. We are not simply critiquing the selfish actions of each individual capitalist. We are denouncing the system that allows this to happen in the first place. Any semblance of justification of capitalism has been erased in the current catastrophe. We are witnessing an unprecedented political situation that defies analogies. In what era of human history was there a generalized social, political, economic, and health crisis while the ruling elite increased their hoard of wealth? We leave this question to the historians. But the results of such a glaring contradiction are sure to be revolutionary. The far-sighted bourgeois strategists are keenly aware of the precariousness of the situation. This was demonstrated at the World Economic Forum in January this year. 
Acting as a sort of hive mind for the international bourgeoisie, the World Economic Forum is attended by heads of government and CEOs from major multinational corporations. Normally a paragon of free market ideology, this year's forum was notable by the complete embrace of Keynesian policies previously considered taboo. In the words of Darren Walker, president of the Ford Foundation, quote, If capitalism is to be sustained, we must put a nail in the ideology propagated by Milton Friedman, unquote. While this certainly is the trend in every major capitalist country, it couldn't be more clear in Canada, where the government is racking up debt at the level of 20% of GDP per year. However, the belief that this will somehow save the system is wishful thinking. Previously, we characterized the underlying cause of the crisis as a combination of overproduction and debt. Overproduction can be resolved in two ways, either by growing the market or by cutting productive capacity. Today, annual GDP is significantly below its peak in 2019, and even the most optimistic projections do not have it returning to 2019 levels until 2022 or 2023. Even getting back to the level of 2019 will not solve the crisis, as the market will still be behind where it should be in terms of normal growth and population expansion. To avoid catastrophe, GDP levels would have to reach a level equivalent to approximately 2% growth for every year after 2019. Therefore, there is little hope that increased demand will immediately solve the crisis. How about the supply side of the equation? There is no evidence that productive capacity has been cut in any appreciable way. To do this, there would have to be wholesale factory closures. Perversely, due to corporate bailouts by the government, the bankruptcy rate has actually gone down in the pandemic. This is because corporations are hoping against hope for more government handouts that will let them weather the storm and return to profitability. But the reality is that a large number of these companies are already dead but are refusing to die. So-called zombie corporations exist on paper and suck up billions of dollars from the state, but are guaranteed to flatline once the welfare checks stop being mailed. Therefore, the only conclusion we can come to is that potential supply is far in excess of actual demand. This means that the general trajectory going forward will not be investment and increased employment, but disinvestment and increased unemployment. Three million jobs were lost between February and April 2020, but the recovery from the first wave peaked at 500,000 jobs below February and subsequently returned to a downward trajectory. The worst is not behind us. The worst is ahead and we have yet to consider the exacerbating effect of debt. All concerns about debt have been thrown out of the window in the present catastrophe. The federal government is set to post a budget deficit of around $400 billion in 2020, adding almost 20% to the debt-to-GDP ratio. But such massive expenditures cannot be continued indefinitely, and they are just delaying the inevitable. Much noise has been made by the corporate media and right wing about the CERB-CRB emergency payments to unemployed workers, but the reality is that 80-90% to 90 of the handouts have gone to business. The total dollar figure for CERB is under $100 billion, while between $700 to $800 billion has been made available as gifts to corporations. Nailing down the exact figures on these measures has been difficult as the government has refused to give a full accounting and some of these funds are even deliberately secret to avoid political embarrassment. 
Scandalously, many corporations sucked up government largesse, such as the wage subsidy, while also laying off workers and paying dividends and executive bonuses. As seen by the phenomenon of zombie corporations, the billions in corporate welfare do not solve the underlying contradiction. Of the companies receiving handouts in the form of wage subsidies, rent subsidies, interest-free and forgivable loans, and other backdoor secret grants, half of them do not need the support and are pocketing the money, while the other half are zombies waiting to die. This deficit financing is not even Keynesian, as little of it is going to public investment. No roads and bridges are being built, no hospitals or recreation centers. There isn't even any significant expenditure on maintenance. Direct corporate handouts do nothing to improve the productivity of labor after the pandemic. Instead, all we get is a hoard of unproductive dead money. They are implementing these unprecedented state financing measures on the heels of massive government indebtedness. For decades prior to the financial crash, governments around the globe had already resorted to measures to inflate the bubble, either directly through deficit financing and state aid, or indirectly through low interest rates and quantitative easing. Even the meager growth seen prior to the 2008-2009 recession was only possible on the basis of using the tools that the ruling class would normally only use to get out of a crisis. The result is that today, faced with this new, even deeper crisis, the ruling class has run out of ammo. Their arsenal is now empty. Hence, the politicians and policymakers have been forced to resort to extremely desperate measures to save their system. The fact that mainstream bourgeois politicians are flirting with things like modern monetary theory tells you how desperate they are. MMT supporters assert that debt is all an illusion that can be overcome if only the political will exists. They suggest that governments, via central banks, should simply continue to print money to fund public expenditure and stop worrying about debts altogether. But basic economic theory states that if you print money, as the Bank of Canada is doing to the tune of $5 billion of quantitative easing per week, then you dilute the value of money and cause inflation. Low interest rates and stimulus spending are supposed to have a similar effect. Additionally, deficit financing leads to increasing debt servicing costs. But the proponents of modern monetary theory and those who wish to defy the economic laws of gravity point out that there has been little inflation and that debt servicing has actually gone down in the pandemic. How do we explain this? The lack of inflation is in fact another example of the crisis of overproduction. During the first period of the Great Depression, 1929 to 1933, there was massive deflation. Governments had a laissez-faire approach and did not intervene. The collapse in demand resulted in a 10% reduction in prices each year. Today's lack of inflation in the face of massive government stimulus appears to be the conflicting forces of low demand versus the reduced value of money cancelling each other out. Eventually, as supply comes back into balance with demand, the inflationary pressures will assert themselves. It is a case of bad things coming to those who wait. Although, while general inflation has been depressed, the bailouts and quantitative easing have led to massive inflation in the prices of stocks and property, increasing the wealth of the rich, while there is sectoral inflation in food prices, decreasing the wealth of the poor. Debt servicing costs have gone down on a larger total debt precisely due to quantitative easing, QE, and the crisis in the real economy. The central bank administers QE by buying debt, pushing down interest rates. 
Additionally, the lack of opportunities for productive investment means that buying debt on the bond market is one of the only ways to make money, but this in turn pushes down interest rates further. There are even reports of negative interest rates where the creditor gets a penalty for loaning money and the debtor a benefit. The capitalist maelstrom has surely turned everything on its head. But eventually, when all comes back into balance, the ship will turn right side up again, leaving the furniture and crew strewn about. The ruling class is split over how to reduce these debts. The Keynesians argue that growth via stimulus will solve the problem, but they are looking back nostalgically at the post-war boom for reference. But such a perspective is ruled out, as none of the conditions for such an upswing are present. The proponents of MMT essentially argue that debts don't matter, while more traditionally conservative sections warn about the unwieldiness of these debt levels and appeal for austerity, but none of these options will solve the problem. MMT only creates other distortions in the market, which eventually leads to hyperinflation, which is simply another way of increasing the cost of living for the working class. Meanwhile, austerity measures falling on the working class would simultaneously weaken consumer demand while upsetting the delicate political equilibrium that they are so desperately trying to correct. This is because, at the end of the day, it is the contradiction of overproduction with the huge levels of excess capacity worldwide that lies behind today's continuing slump. No matter what measures the capitalists implement, they are only delaying the inevitable. While none of the measures that the capitalists are putting in place are a solution to the crisis of the system, it would be incorrect for us to rule out any form of economic boom. While the general trend is downwards, small periods of growth cannot be ruled out. On this topic, there has been considerable discussion in the media and among economists on the question of economic recovery in the aftermath of the pandemic. The optimistic bourgeois commentators believe that there will be a V-shaped recovery on the basis of pent-up demand. It is true that while millions have been impoverished as a result of the pandemic, there is also a middle-class layer that has been able to do quite well for themselves during the pandemic. They have been largely working at home, and, in Canada at least, have had their income topped up through Trudeau's government supports. They have been unable to spend as much money as they normally would on restaurants, nights going out to the cinema or bar, and taking holidays abroad, etc. When the pandemic is finally over, they will be looking forward to resuming these activities and spending this money. This could result in an uptick in the economy, even a sharp one, together with the massive injections of money from the state. However, it is important to understand that even such an uptick will not restore the equilibrium that capitalism has lost. Even a modest recovery in the economic activity and a slight fall in unemployment would have the immediate effect of reactivating the economic struggle, as workers strive to win back everything they have lost in the previous period. Additionally, the increased spending by the top part of society that has saved money in the pandemic will promote inflation that will impact the bottom part of society that faced the worst effects of the crisis. We will discuss more on the potential for class struggle later in this document. This is where an understanding of capitalism's boom-slump cycle becomes important. As Trotsky explained at the Third World Congress of the Comintern, quote, Crisis and boom blend with all the transitional phases to constitute a cycle, or one of the great circles of industrial development. Each cycle lasts from 8 to 9 or 10 to 11 years. By force of its internal contradictions, capitalism thus develops not along a straight line, but in a zigzag manner, through ups and downs. This is what provides the ground for the following claim of the apologists of capitalism. 
Namely, since we observe after the war a succession of boom and crisis, it follows that all things are working together for the best in this best of all capitalist worlds. It is otherwise in reality. The fact that capitalism continues to oscillate cyclically after the war merely signifies that capitalism is not yet dead, that we are not dealing with a corpse. So long as capitalism is not overthrown by the proletarian revolution, it will continue to live in cycles, swinging up and down. Crises and booms were inherent in capitalism at its very birth. They will accompany it to its grave. But to determine capitalism's age and its general condition, to establish whether it is still developing, or whether it has matured, or whether it is in decline, one must diagnose the character of the cycles. In much the same manner, the state of the human organism can be diagnosed by whether the breathing is regular or spasmodic, deep or superficial, and so on. End quote. It is remarkable how applicable these lines are to the current situation today. Of course, the COVID-19 pandemic is not the same as World War I. The pandemic has not brought about the immense destruction of Europe or resulted in a death toll as high as World War I. Yet, there is a certain analogy between the war and the pandemic. The pandemic has deepened a crisis that was already underway and has resulted in considerable economic dislocation on many levels, which will have a lasting impact for some time to come. Similar to the period following World War I, the apologists of capitalism today assure us that because the boom-slump cycle will continue after the lockdowns, etc., that capitalism has recovered and we are once again living in the best of all capitalist worlds. Using the character of the boom-slump cycle from the previous period into the present one, we can determine the overall condition of the health of capitalism. Capitalism experiences three distinct types of periods of development. Periods of growth and upswing, periods of stagnation, and periods of decline and crisis. In periods of upswing, the crises are brief and superficial in nature, while the booms are long-lasting and thorough. In periods of capitalist decline, the crises are prolonged and deep, while the booms are shallow, superficial, and largely speculative in nature. In periods of stagnation, the booms and the slumps will occur with the same general depth and intensity and tend to cancel one another out, leaving the curve of capitalist development flat. What period of development does capitalism find itself in now? If we look at the boom-slump cycle, we can see that capitalism is developing labored breathing. It may even be experiencing the onset of death rattles. One thing is for certain, capitalism is no longer breathing robustly as it did during the post-war upswing from 1948 to 1974. It has very clearly entered into a period of decline. One thing is for certain, capitalism is no longer breathing robustly as it did during the post-war upswing from 1948 to 1974. It has very clearly entered into a period of decline. The booms in the early 2000s preceding the Great Recession of 2008 were rather shallow and approximated population growth. The 2008 recession represented the biggest economic crisis since the Great Depression up to that point. The so-called recovery following the 2008 recession was internationally the longest in history, but it was also extraordinarily weak and can hardly even be called a boom. The reality of the situation is that capitalism has been in a slump since 2008, and following this recovery, capitalism has now entered another crisis, this one even greater and deeper than the crisis of 2008. 
If capitalism is lurching from extreme crisis to extreme crisis with only shallow and superficial recoveries in between these crises, then we can say with certainty that capitalism has entered an organic crisis and a period of sharp decline. Going forward, we can expect the booms in the coming period to be largely short and shallow and the slumps to be deep and severe. In that sense, the coming period will be more similar to the crises between the World Wars, 1914-1945, than the historic post-war upswing following the Second World War, 1948-1974. The fact of the matter is, the present crisis is inseparably entangled with the coronavirus pandemic, making any sort of concrete predictions impossible. For this reason, the forecasts of the various economists and experts are really only guesswork. The only certainty is that all the main indicators, from the productivity of labor to capacity utilization and so on, point towards an overall downwards trend. Does this mean that a boom or recovery of some sort is completely ruled out? An economic recovery following the pandemic cannot be ruled out. In fact, at a certain point, some sort of recovery is inevitable. The capitalist system has always moved in booms and slumps, and sooner or later, if it is not overthrown by the working class, a way out of this situation will also be found. But what type of recovery will this be? Will it be the beginning of a long period of growth and prosperity, such as the post-war upswing? Or will it only be a temporary interlude between one crisis and the next, similar to the 1920s and 1930s? What is far more likely than a V-shaped recovery is a K-shaped recovery following the pandemic, which will be a continuation of the same trend we have seen develop during the COVID crisis. The rich will continue to get richer, and the poor will continue to get poorer. Such a recovery is a recipe for continued social and economic crisis, not the basis for a period of growth and upswing. Capitalism has fundamentally lost its equilibrium, and a K-shaped recovery will not allow capitalism to restore it. At the moment, the capitalists are concerned with maintaining social equilibrium. They are attempting to prevent a social explosion from below with a massive injection of cash from the state. This explains the bailouts by the Trudeau government and the $12 trillion pumped into the system worldwide via the state. Development in the productive forces are contradictory and stagnant. New technologies do not raise the general standard of living or improve working conditions. In fact, they tend to make things worse. What's more, there is an entire host of new technologies which are perpetually on the horizon, such as automation and artificial intelligence. These new technologies are not implemented in a widespread manner, and their development is actually held back because the capitalists intuitively understand that society will not be able to deal with the mass unemployment it would entail. They also have an understanding that replacing workers with machines also shrinks demand, limiting the market and leading to falling investments and ultimately overproduction. The COVID crisis has accelerated processes that were already underway and which will only increase after the pandemic has ended. The rise of protectionism and the breakdown of global supply chains, automation and the threat of technological unemployment, growing inequality and the concentration of wealth in the hands of the big tech bosses, all of these tendencies were clearly observable before 2020 and will continue to develop in the years ahead. The fundamental question is not whether there will be a boom or slump after the pandemic ends. There will inevitably be booms and slumps going forward as long as capitalism continues to exist, but the booms will be shallow and weak and the slumps deep and severe. The general curve of capitalist development will trend downwards for some time in the coming period. 
The fundamental question is whether capitalism will be capable of developing the productive forces. What is clear is that, having entered a period of organic decline, capitalism can no longer develop the productive forces as it did in the past. This is one of the fundamental aspects of the crisis and points to the terminal decline of the system as a whole. The private ownership of the means of production and the nation-state are the fundamental barriers to the development of the productive forces. In the post-war upswing, capitalism was able to find various means of partially and temporarily overcoming these fetters. This was done largely through the massive expansion of world trade and to a lesser extent through the mechanism of state and deficit financing. In the post-war upswing, capitalism was able to find various means of partially and temporarily overcoming these fetters. This was done largely through the massive expansion of world trade and to a lesser extent through the mechanism of state and deficit financing. In the period following the post-war upswing, capitalism was able to find various outlets to delay abject crisis. The introduction of capitalism in China played a major role in this, but so too did various speculative bubbles. The dot-com bubble, the housing bubble, the speculative booms in the Asian tiger and BRICS countries, etc. With the crisis generalized and all countries in deep economic crisis, these options are no longer available as viable outlets for the system. The central question remains, who pays? In the final analysis, this must mean that either the working class will shoulder the burden through austerity and attacks on living standards, or the capitalist class, who will resist tooth and nail any attempts to bite into their profits. The attempt to maintain social equilibrium is driving up debt levels to unprecedented levels, which is upsetting the economic equilibrium even further. This in turn upsets the social equilibrium in a dialectical feedback loop. At a certain stage, the bourgeoisie and their political representatives will be forced to try to restore the economic equilibrium. They will have to do something about all the debt that has been racked up. This will mean the end of corporate welfare and the clawing back of pandemic supports such as the CRB. This will mean attacks on wages and social services, a shift from Keynesian-inspired spending to cold austerity by the capitalists is a recipe for social explosion. We need look no further than Alberta to see this. The reality of the situation is that no matter what the capitalists do, they will be unable to restore the economic and social equilibrium of capitalist society. What's more, any measures they take will simply create further disequilibrium. The full extent of the crisis is also not currently known. State financing has partially masked the economic fallout of the crisis. According to capitalist ideology, profits are supposed to be a reward for investing and developing the productive forces of society, and the state is supposed to stay out of the way. But as there are no productive profits to be had, the state is guaranteeing profits by means of corporate welfare and printing money to the tune of $5 billion a week. Capitalism stands condemned by its own criteria. The result of removing state support will not be a thorough boom, but economic chaos. The only result of this will be a downward spiral of rising unemployment, the continued collapse in demand, and falling investment. In the end, the ruling class will try to make the workers pay for the handouts given to the bosses, and the result will be explosive, ultimately leading to revolution. The capitalists will do their best to put the burden of paying for the pandemic onto those who fared the worst in the pandemic. Modest growth may even give workers more confidence to fight. 
The fact that the top quarter of income earners have enjoyed higher pay and employment in the pandemic, while the bottom three quarters have faced wage cuts and increased unemployment, will only add to the resentment. This is a recipe for explosions of the class struggle. And yet, there are those who believe that the question of who pays can be avoided. Some of these people even call themselves socialists. Proponents of modern monetary theory, MMT, and universal basic income, UBI, try to ignore the laws of physics and the class struggle that flows from them. Material wealth cannot be conjured out of thin air. Items that satisfy human needs must be made of real matter, and people making those items or supplying services must be fed with real food. Money in itself is not wealth or value. You cannot eat money, you cannot live in it, and it won't keep you warm on a cold day. Money is just the measurement of value. Printing more money creates no more value than moving from inches to centimeters produces more length, Celsius to Fahrenheit more heat, or hours to minutes more time. Generally speaking, it is the sections of the left who have become demoralized over the prospect of winning the class struggle who have adopted the call for universal basic income, UBI. Even the liberals flirted with the idea last fall before dropping it. The mass implementation of the $2,000 per month CERB slash CRB payments have popularized the issue. But UBI also does not eradicate the question of the class struggle and who pays. Firstly, we must make clear that while we were not in favor of CERB as the method of supporting workers during lockdown, we are also not in favor of removing it from workers who are now relying on it to survive. We cannot fall for the right-wing propaganda that is desperately concerned about every penny that goes to the workers while totally ambivalent about the fact that ten times more is going to corporations. Our demand in the lockdown is full pay to all laid-off workers, paid for by the boss, double pay for essential workers, also paid for by the boss, and workers' control to determine what work is and is not essential. Any capitalist who says they cannot afford it must be forced to open the books, as many of them seem to have no problem paying executive bonuses, paying dividends, and hoarding half a trillion dollars last year. If they genuinely cannot pay, then they should be expropriated to save jobs and essential production. However, some think that giving $25,000 to every Canadian would solve the crisis of capitalism and is the best issue for workers to focus on. It will not, and it is not. Right-wing supporters of UBI say you can pay for it by slashing social programs and giving people a cash handout. This results in workers being poorer as the value of social services free at the point of use is far higher than the cash given. User fees for private services would quickly eradicate the UBI check, leaving workers poorer than before. Left-wing supporters of UBI say it should be paid for by taxing the rich, but they present this as if it is a simple administrative act of budgeting rather than the effect of vociferous class struggle. They ignore the experience of social democratic governments like Bob Ray's NDP, who tried to implement mild reforms and taxes only to be forced into attacking the workers by the resistance of the capitalists. By putting forward a policy that explicitly downplays the class struggle, regardless of whether some academic policy paper that nobody reads says it will be financed via taxes, prepares the way for the neoliberal version of UBI. The fact that UBI is being promoted by the right wing of the NDP and the left wing of the liberals should be enough to tell us it is not a solution. If the crisis gets big enough, the capitalists are sure to dig this policy out of the trash can in order to distract everyone. Rather than pretend that there is a way forward without struggle, it is better to state clearly that struggle is the only way forward. 
And if the workers are to win that struggle, it will not be for abstract policy formulas or money-printing schemes. It should be for clear socialist demands that directly transfer wealth from the bosses to the workers. Pay higher than inflation, union rights, sick pay, free education, pharmacare, universal housing, childcare, pensions, etc. All paid for by expropriating the top 150 corporations that control over 80% of the Canadian economy. Those supporting UBI think it is an easier option than struggle. It isn't an easy option, it's a panacea, while struggle is unavoidable. A socialist government resulting from sustained struggle would not implement a cash handout while leaving the bosses free to enforce poverty wages. The law of the market says that wages tend towards subsistence. If half of that subsistence is provided by the government, the bosses will merely cut wages in half. Instead, we would rip up the current property rights of the parasitic billionaire class that does not invest and ensure there is full unemployment and decent wages for the majority. Sooner or later, a turning point will be reached. The CRB payments and corporate welfare cannot be indefinitely financed out of budget deficits amounting to 20% of GDP every year. Inflation and interest rates will begin to rise, thereby increasing debt payments. It can take a few years for this moment to be reached, as the social implications of cutting families and businesses off their supports will be politically unpalatable to whichever government is in power. Not only is this unpalatable, but the removal of these supports could easily lead to a mass social explosion. This is especially true about the CRB program, which is more expansive than similar programs in other Western countries. As Milton Friedman said, nothing is so permanent as a temporary government program. With a million poor people still on this program, any attempt to take it away could easily unleash a mass movement. This is the main reason why the Trudeau government continues to kick the can down the road, extending the program again and again. However, these supports must be removed at some point. The longer this turning point is delayed, the worse the crisis will be. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.